This podcast is not sponsored by Maybelline. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Welcome back to What is Judaism? I'm the Average Rabbi. I'm Joe. Hello, Rabbi. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to be back. It's great to have you here. Thank Thanks. you. I'm glad to be back. How are you doing, Joe? Uh, I'm doing extremely well. I listened to our podcast that we recorded. Obviously, I was here for it when it was recorded as well. Uh, but going through it a second time was, I, I would, I don't really even have words for how it affected me. It was, it was profound. It helped me a lot um, to know that I have a purpose. Um, I didn't question whether or not there was a God, but to feel like I understand a bit more of what my purpose is and the purpose of creation. I feel more of a sense of obligation to myself and to the world around me, uh, but also more of a sense of peace that I'm on the right path. Uh, I've been in a pretty good mood all week. Now, it's not a magic bullet. I don't expect to just be in ecstasy forever. But, man, that was some good stuff. Yeah, having this clarity is the first step to to the approach in life. We, these things, we shouldn't take it for granted. We hear it once, we learn it, and it makes sense, and we internalize it, and then we move on, and we think, you know, I've dealt with this subject already, and mm. I have that clarity, and I'm going to study other topics and we leave this by the wayside. But the truth is that every time we review this, and, and for me, every time I review it, it further reinforces the basic principles of why we exist, and it gives us the motivation to continue the work that we're doing. And so it affected you like that. It affected me like that also, maybe to a, um, a lesser degree, having heard it so many times. But, but yeah, we need to constantly review this material. I I'm really glad that we're recording it. It'll be easy to go back to it. Excellent. Let's continue. In the last episode, we spoke about the purpose of the universe. And we ended off identifying the main aspect, the main element of the purpose of creation. Again, the purpose of creation is to have an entity which can achieve perfection for itself and connect to God. And we identified that that entity is the human being. So in this chapter, we'll be discussing what is the human being? How does it, in fact, accomplish that goal? And what is it comprised of? All right, I'm ready. Let's go. Number one. Once we have established that the human being is that creation that was made to connect to God. And it's placed in the balance equally between perfection and deficiency. And it possesses the ability to acquire perfection. However, this must be done with the free will of man. Because if this being, if man were compelled to any degree to choose perfection, then it wouldn't really be his choice, and he wouldn't be a master of his own perfection, because that perfection could be attributed to the force that was pushing him in that direction. And therefore, the entire 
purpose for creation would not be fulfilled because one of the conditions for that creation to truly achieve its perfection is that it owns that perfection. That must be done by choosing it. Alkane, therefore, Therefore, it must be that the choice is placed in the hands of man. That this being is placed in the balance of both sides and is not forced to either one side. And it has the power of free will to choose which direction to go. And it possesses the ability to acquire either one for itself, either the perfection or to further delve into the depths of deficiency. Therefore, man was created with two inherent inclinations, meaning man isn't just this neutral being that sees options in front of it. Man himself is composed of forces that are drawing him either towards perfection or towards evil. He's composed of both of them. And he has the choice to push himself in whichever direction he chooses. Well, this is interesting because it doesn't normally feel like we have an even amount of inclination toward good and bad things. It, it sometimes feels like we might have more to one side or the other. And it seems like you're suggesting that if there were, it sounds like you're saying that we are in fact neutral between those things. Is that how you feel, Joe? I mean, maybe, maybe God messed up with you. <laughs> Am I broken? No, you're not broken. You're you're raising a good point, and we're going to address this later on. And I want you to hold on to that. Okay. Yeah. You know, so we'll get there, and when we get there, we'll we'll come back to this question and raise it again. But thank you for bringing that up. Number two. However, in order for this to truly be accomplished, God decreed that in order for this to truly, in order for this structure to work, man must be created from two opposite entities. Meaning, from a soul which is pure and spiritual, and he uses the word intellectual, which is interesting, and a body which is physical, earthly, and murky and opaque. It sounds like you're mentioning those things in the last chapter that we said are of perfection and are of deficiency. Exactly. That man is created from these two entities. Well, let's continue. That each one of these two entities, respectively, is pushing itself, is being drawn towards its respective nature. Which means to say, the body is drawn towards physicality, earthliness, and the soul is being drawn upward toward its nature, which is spirituality. In other words, goodness as opposed to, uh, let's call it evil. It's a good word for it. I'm not sure. But that's all we have. Mm-hmm. 
What, what happens now is that since man is created as a fusion of these two, not just different, but opposite entities that are pulling in opposite directions, man himself finds himself in an inherent struggle. There's a war that is occurring in the very nature of man. His soul is pulling in one direction. His body is pulling in another direction. But what also happens is that since there is this war, there, there's a battlefront, and that, that line where the battlefront is is always shifting, which means to say that if the soul would win a battle, he chooses the soul and uplifts the soul, chooses to identify in that direction, it pulls the body up together with him because he really is just one entity. And conversely, if he allows himself, and I want to make this point here because this is very important. He, in this book, the Ramchal, changes the language. When he says if a person pushes himself in the soul direction, he uses a language of to overcome resistance. If he overpowers the soul onto his body, then he will elevate the body as well. In the con- Conversely, he doesn't say if he overpowers the body over the soul. He says if, if he allows the body to take control. So there might be some element of natural inclination toward deficiency. Right. It doesn't mean that there's a heavier pull towards deficiency, but it does mean that the default state of doing nothing is on the side of physicality because the soul is energy and the body is stillness Mm. and desires to go back to earth. Decay. Right. So I theoretically, there's enough of a pull and a draw towards energy and spirituality that it still balances itself out. But the nature is that if you do nothing, then that is moving toward the body as opposed to the soul. It's really fascinating though. It it is it feels like a battlefield in our inside ourselves. You can do good things and you will still feel that pull of of yourself toward bad things. And and conversely, if you just decide to uh to succumb to all the bad thoughts and impulses you have, you wouldn't be satisfied with that either. You can't just give in and then, you know, live a life of luxury having given up your morals. You still feel the draw toward the other side, toward goodness. Right. We, we have an inherent desire for meaning. And anyone who, like you said, anyone who has spent significant period of time just indulging in their physicality, wakes up in the morning and finds that it's all meaningless. Mm. And uh, and people aren't content with that. We, we have a natural desire to nourish our soul. So this internal conflict, this was brought up by Sigmund Freud himself. He developed as if, you know, he created this whole new system. He was Jewish, by the way, uh, did not have a Torah education, at least uh, to, to my knowledge. <laughs> this model that maybe... Many of our listeners are familiar with the id, the ego, and the superego, where the id represents that sort of animalistic desire, those cravings. That would be the side of the body that we're talking about now, the yetzerah, the inclination towards physicality and, uh, again, quote-unquote evil. And then there's, on the other extreme, is the superego, which is this, the, the conscience, our set of values that are pushing us in a, in a moralistic direction. And then there's what we have in between, which is the conscious state of the ego that we decide to either indulge in the id or 
choose the side of the superego. So if that's a, a framework that people are familiar with that can help. That is, that is very, so, so I exist at, at the, the cross section between the id and the superego. And so I get to choose which one of those I want to pursue. Right. It really begs the question, who are you? This is a, in fact, I did a podcast with Dan Coleman once on this, on this topic. Who, who are you? What is the essence of who you are? Especially from a religious context, no one would say that I am my body. My body is the animal that I operate. That's clear that from, from a Jewish perspective, I am not my body, or at least I shouldn't identify that way. Uh, so the alternative is that I'm my soul. But on the other hand, we have all these prayers where we mention my soul as if it's something that I possess and not something hmm. that I am. We don't refer to the soul in the first person. We refer yeah. to it as, as an object that I deal with. So what am I? If I'm not my body and I possess my soul, who am I? And what we see here is that I am the product of the combination of these two things mm. that's been endowed with will to choose which one to identify with. So I can choose to identify with my soul. I can say, I am my soul, and that will uplift the soul and uplift the body, and that defines what this combination is. Or I can decide, I am my body, which will further lower the soul and indulge in the body. So that's the choice. That's why we're here. Number three. However, we shouldn't think that we are eternally bound to this struggle. Meaning the purpose of our creation is that we should be making difficult choices choosing our perfection, earning our perfection, but that doesn't need to be done forever. There's a, there's a limit to this. When we've completed our work, let's say, the work of choosing the soul over the body, there is a completion to that. When we finish it, we can then experience the benefit of that and experience the fruit of our labor. Therefore, Hashem created two different time periods. One time period is the time for working, the effort that we exert in this world in order to choose the body over the soul. And the other time period is purely to just experience the result of the work that we've done. Okay, so he's referring to this world and another. Right. We'll not, get... not going to work. Versus versus enjoying your time off and having a vacation here and there. Exactly. He does he, when he says a time period for work, he doesn't mean going to your job. Okay. He means the spiritual work that we do with our life. So there's this time period that we're engaging in this internal battle of spirituality and physicality, and there's a time period where that battle will be done. And we'll no longer have to fight, and we can just experience the the results. Some of us take things way too literally, so. Thank you for the clarification. Glad you spoke it out. Good. Ulam. However, However, goodness always wins, meaning it's much more unpleasant to be in the battle, much more pleasant to enjoy the fruits of your labor. So which one is longer? Which time period is longer? The time period for working is set and limited. We have a certain lifespan. 
during our life, we're charged with making these choices and doing this work. However, the time for receiving the reward is endless. There will be, I hesitate to use the word eternal because that implies that there's no beginning as well, mm. but there will be a start time where we'll start to experience what we have, what we've done, but it, it will just continue indefinitely. Number four. Ve'ulam. Kafi hischalav zmanoi, kach roishi hischalav matzovoi ushar mikrov. He says, however, not only are there two different time periods, just like the time must change, so too the entire state of being must change. Let's explain what that means. He calls man heishtadlus. He neitzarach shiye betichuna echod shiyachlu limatzei boi kol en yanam hemitzarachin lei. In the time of our work, in this life, we're charged with the battle. There needs to be a context in which we can fight. There needs to be a world where we can engage in that battle. Perush, meaning, The battle needs to occur. Meaning, in this world, when we're engaged in the battle, the battle has to be fair and equal. So there's nothing that's going to prevent the soul from exerting itself, and there's nothing going to prevent the body from exerting itself. And on the other hand, just like there's nothing unfairly preventing each side from exerting its influence, there's also nothing unfairly assisting. Exactly, assisting its influence as well, meaning they're both in perfect balance so that we can have a fair choice between the two and therefore that choice will be attributed only to us and not to any unfair advantage of an influence. There is reason to think that to perpetually stay in this kind of arrangement where we're always choosing God that might be ideal. In fact, there is a philosophy like that. But the Ramchal says that that's not the case. The ultimate goal that a person should acquire perfection for themselves, in order for the ultimate goal to be accomplished, there needs to be a time where the battle's done, where a person's no longer fighting and they can just experience their perfection. So Jews don't believe in the infinite battle in Valhalla? Maybe that's what the Ramchal was referring to in, in this philosophy that would consider that an ideal situation. He, maybe he's talking about Valhalla. He says, no, Interesting. You shouldn't think that it's Valhalla. <laughs> yeah. But in the time for the receiving of the reward, there needs to be an opposite situation. As long as the body has any sort of control and is trying to wrest control from the soul, it's going to be preventing the soul from connecting to God and experiencing its reward, which we know that reward isn't gold coins. Reward is the experience of being connected to God and vicariously experiencing godliness. So therefore that 
is antithetical to the to the purpose. The alkane, therefore, he ne roishu who loyishlate oz Therefore, in this second time period where we're receiving the reward, the body must be completely subjugated and has no authority whatsoever that it's trying to exert over the soul. Therefore, two completely different worlds were created. This world, which is the world of work, and the world to come. This world is the place that's prepared for us to do all of the work that we need to do. And the world to come is the place where we can receive that reward. So if the body is of deficiency, and if we're saying it's going to be completely subjugated to the will of the soul in Olam Haba. Yes. What is the body needed for there? Oh, that's a great question. Why do you still need the body when the soul can just experience its godliness? Well, think about it like this. The soul on its own couldn't have done anything and could not have earned its reward. You know, there's an interesting analogy that's given in the Talmud. And really, the analogy is given in the opposite way about punishment, but we can apply it all the more so to the reward. The analogy is as follows. You have two people that are planning on stealing from the orchard of the king. And these two people, they each have a respective deficiency. One of them is blind and the other one is lame. And so the blind man, he's perfectly capable of walking around the orchard and taking anything, but he has no idea where the trees are, so he can't access any of the fruits. The lame man sees where all the fruits are, but has no ability to interact with the orchard because he can't move around. (laughs) So what do they do? The blind man puts the lame man on his shoulders. The lame man with the vision directs the blind man, and the blind man can interact with the orchard and take all the fruits, and together they steal the fruits of the Sounds like that, that Richard Pryor movie. See no evil, hear no evil, except there's a blind man and a deaf man in, in that one. But Unfortunately, I'm not familiar. Or maybe uh, fortunately, I'm not familiar. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a classic. The may, fa- the fa- what's the lesson? The lesson is the king comes to punish these two people for stealing the fruits. And he first comes to the blind man and he says, time for your punishment. You stole my fruits. And the blind man, in his defense, he says, how can you punish me? I could not possibly have taken anything myself because I can't see where any of the fruits are. If anything, you should punish that man over there. He was the one who showed me where all the fruits were. I'm useless on my own. Hmm. He says, oh, good argument. So he goes to the lame man. He says, time for your punishment. The lame man gives a very similar argument. He says, how could you punish me? I'm lame. I have no way of interacting. I, I wouldn't be able to take any of the fruits on my own either. So the king scratches his beard thinking what to do and he comes with a solution picks up the lame man puts him on the blind man's shoulders and beats them both together (laughs) the lesson is it's true each one has a good argument they're each useless on their own but together they form a new entity together they form something which is capable of receiving punishment and also receiving the reward the soul on its own is purely a spiritual entity. It's magnetically and naturally mm. drawn towards spirituality 
the whole purpose of creation was to have an entity that chooses goodness, not that's just magnetically and naturally drawn to it. And so the soul itself isn't deserving of reward. But you, the human being who is the combination of the soul and the body, is deserving of the reward. The body also deserves some of the reward. Yes, exactly. So the body and the soul together form this new entity, which is you. Wow. Okay, let's continue. Number five. Something else we need to know. And this is addressing a previous question that you brought up. We'll come back to that now. The human being that we're discussing up until now, it is not the human being that we know and love. There's been a a fundamental, tremendous transformation that has occurred. And that is the sin of the first man, Adam. We might think from an uneducated perspective that the whole story of Adam sinning in the garden was he did something wrong and then got a punishment. But it's much more than that. The result of his sin is a fundamental transformation in the makeup of what the human being is. And also, although he's not going to delve into it too much here, also consequently what the universe is. Because man was created as a microcosm of the universe. We're not going to, I apologize for even bringing that up because we're not going to explain that too much in this podcast at least, but we'll, let's take it as a given for now. So there's been a great change that's occurred. So everything we've been discussing up until now is something else, is the way man was conceptually created. Now, v'ulam, however, prate hashinu rabim, the details of what this transformation are, or was, are many. We'll speak about it much more later on in the book. So now it comes out that when we speak about the human being, there are really two options here. We could be speaking about the human being before the sin, or we could be speaking about what a human being is after the sin. Like we'll explain further. Number six. So, okay, so number five, we're just bringing up, without going into any detail about it, that we should know that there's a difference in what a human is before the sin of Adam and after the sin of Adam. Okay, so that that's all that that section was saying, was that we have changed fundamentally. Yes. Number six. The way Adam, the first man, was created initially was exactly in the situation that we've been describing up until now. That he was comprised of these two elements that were completely opposite, as we've spoken about, the soul and the body, and in reality, around him, there were two elements, good and evil. And he was standing exactly in the middle, balanced between the two, to cleave to whichever one he wanted. 
It was fitting, appropriate for him to choose good. Which would have dominated the soul over the body. And his intellect over his physicality. Had he made that decision, where he was right in the middle, if he had tilted towards perfection, game over. He would have won. That's it. That would have been his ultimate completion and perfection had he made that one decision in the Garden of Eden. This was that decision in the, in the very beginning. This is the first decision ever made as far as choosing to do good or choosing to do bad. Right, the first moral decision, and ideally it should have been the only decision. I want to go back to one thing that you said, though. Um, is it saying that good and evil were external? Think, I don't know if it was good and evil exactly that were said. Yes, um, he doesn't elaborate too much on this point, but we do have a tradition for that. The, the, the concept of good and evil wasn't something that he had internalized. For him, there was truth and falsehood. Hmm. Good and evil was a concept that he had internalized when he ate from the fruit. But they both did exist, and he had the choice to in- engage in one or the other. I see. Now, number seven. He says, even though we don't feel or experience the effect of the soul, beyond the fact that we're alive and that we're conscious, which those two things are faculties of the soul. So aside from those two things, we don't feel any other effect of the soul upon us. However, part of the nature of the soul is that it has the capacity to purify the body, whatever its vessel is, and to elevate it one stage after the next, to the point where it can be a completely subsidiary vessel for it to experience pure godliness. And the physicality won't be a barrier at all. Just the opposite will facilitate it. That's what it was created for. So the soul has this ability to purify the body. However, Adam Harishan, the first man, Adam, was in this position. He had the choice that had he chosen goodness, his soul would have elevated his body and purified his body completely to the point where he would, he would almost purely be a spiritual entity with this barely perceptible body that's just facilitating his spirituality, which would have been in, in a state of ultimate perfection. Is that clear? I, I'm going to kind of want to rewind that just because I, I had to think about that for a second. Um, do you mind going back 30 seconds or so? So let's, let's recap that. That's number seven, is that we need to know that even though we don't feel the effect of the soul on the body beyond the fact that we're alive and that we're conscious— the soul does have the capacity to purify and elevate the body to make it a vessel for the soul so that the physicality won't have any interference whatsoever. And Adam was in this position when he was created. Before the sin, he had the ability, had he chosen good, 
would say chosen well, but it's accurate to say chosen good as well. <laughs> right. Had he made that the correct choice, his soul would have done that, would have fulfilled its capacity to purify the body, and he would have just been almost a purely spiritual entity with a body that's just facilitating his soul. That just would have been mission success. Exactly. Just in that one stage. But spoiler alert, it, it didn't go didn't go well. And it's been kind of downhill since then. Number eight. The Kevin Shechata, now that he sinned, Nishtana had Devarim Shinuigadu. There's been a great change, transformation. The Hu Kihine Batrila Hoya Babriya Hesrenas, Shahoy Bashir Mashahoy Matstarik. Originally, within the world, there was a certain amount of deficiency, the maximum deficiency that was just barely necessary. In order to place man in the balance that he needed to be in to choose perfection. And therefore, he would have the ability to move in the correct direction and to achieve and acquire perfection for himself. However, as a result of his sin, as a result of his sin, he increased and multiplied the amount of deficiency within himself and within the entire universe. So this is because he is a microcosm of the universe, that, right. like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's kind of a, a tangential point here. Okay. But it's correct. And he further, he made the rectification of himself, the ability to acquire perfection, he made it more difficult than it originally was. Mm. Perish, let, let's explain this. Originally, it was, originally, it was relatively easy for him to eliminate his deficiency and to move toward and acquire perfection. Because this is what Hashem originally intended. It shouldn't be a vastly difficult experience. It was just Here's an opportunity, choose good, and then it's over. And it was a, a, maybe it was a simple choice. It's hard for us to put ourselves, it's impossible for us to put ourselves in, in that position. But it, what we're seeing here is that it was relatively easy to acquire perfection. The fact that he wasn't perfected yet wasn't his fault. That's the way he was created initially. And so, therefore, it can't be held against him too much, and it can't be too difficult, because nothing was his fault. He just needs to be placed in a somewhat neutral space where he can choose perfection. Hmm. That just in a position where he can move away from evil and choose good. Then immediately and easily he would have eliminated his deficiency and achieved perfection. However, with his sin, since as a result of himself, his choice, he pushed away perfection farther than it was before, an increased deficiency within himself, moved in the wrong direction. And here's an important point. It's not just that he moved further away from deficiency, he chose to move away from deficiency. He put it away from perfection. Thank you. Away from perfection. He chose that for himself. And now it's now it's on him. 
It's no longer so easy to achieve perfection. So not only are you at rock bottom, but you're responsible for putting yourself there and you should feel even worse because of it. Yeah, I mean, look, it wasn't rock bottom. You can always go lower, <laughs> right? So, so that's always a challenge. Not only is there still a draw to go even lower, hmm. but to choose perfection even moving in the right direction, you're still in the red. Yeah. And now it must be that in order, the effort now that's required for him to achieve perfection is now doubled. He needs to first restore the state mm. of things before he destroyed it and rectify not only himself, but the world with him. And then after that's been accomplished, then he furthermore needs to bring himself from that situation into the state of perfection as originally was intended. I so see. A lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. We're, we're still doing it. This is all of humanity as a result of this. Number nine. V'ulam. Milvad koze. This is a, a very important point we're going to speak at now. As a result of the sin, something else happened. It's not just that it's harder to get back to perfection. It's now practically impossible, at least in our current state. In man's current state of degradation, having been infected by the ra, or we've been calling evil, that he ingested, that became part of who he is, he is now incapable of receiving the ultimate reward of being connected to God in so much as that he is still comprised of evil. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, he has that within him, so... I, I think that I think that makes sense. He can't fully cleave to God and be connected to God if part of his essential makeup. Well, so is it then impossible? It's impossible in his current state. So el rather So therefore, he needs to go through a process of breaking down, which we call death. And there also needs to be a breakdown and a decay of everything else that's been infected, which is the entire universe. So this is why death was given to man. If you note in, in the Genesis narrative, after he sinned, and God says, now I'm going to banish Adam from the garden. Lest he eat from the tree of life. From the tree of life. Why is God so cruel? This is vengeance that he's taking out on, on Adam? I mean, what? Well, I, I can tell you as someone who pursued the Bible first as an atheist, the the scholarly interpretation of that is God was jealous or God was afraid of his own tendency toward becoming jealous. It was the idea that now Adam has the knowledge of good and evil. So if he were to eat from the tree of life, he would be just like me. And there can't be two gods, so I have to banish him. That's the secular interpretation. 
right. of what happened there. Sounds and it like, sounds much less believable than this one. Right. It makes a very petty God, doesn't yeah. it? It's, yeah. So the, what's, what's really happening here is that for man's benefit, God says, lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. That's the end of the sentence, right? And live forever. This would be detrimental to man. If he would be perpetually and eternally in a state of deficiency because he's ingested this evil, he won't be able to achieve his ultimate purpose of being connected to God in his maximum, in the maximum way. Wow. So therefore, for his benefit, he is exiled from the garden. It's for his benefit. In order that he can die, to break down, to separate the soul from the body. And then, next stage, we haven't gotten there yet. The soul cannot purify the body fully until first it undergoes a process of leaving the body, separating, and the body can be allowed to decay and break down. And then the proverbial building can be rebuilt, meaning the, the body will be reconstructed, and then the neshama will re-enter the body and then is able to purify it completely. And so too the entire universe, all of creation, will need to break down. I guess if you want to say it in, a, in more colloquial terms, an apocalypse. Hmm. And the world will be rebuilt in a proper and fitting way that it can be a context for perfection. Because right now it's in a state of distortion. The mm. Alkain, therefore, Nigzar Allah Adam Shiyamus, therefore it was decreed upon man that he should die. Vyachzor and he will return and be again. And this is what we refer to as the resurrection of the dead. This is a fundamental principle of Jewish belief. And this world, the universe that was destroyed, also will return and be renewed. And this is what our sages referred to when they said, There will be 6,000 years where the world will be in 1,000 years of destruction. At the end of that 1,000 years of the world being in a state of disarray and broken down, the creator of the universe will come and restore and renew the world in a state of perfection. So does the resurrection, this is a literal resurrection. It is a literal resurrection. The, the concept of the resurrection is that the potential that God created in the world and the purpose of creation won't be lost. So that's the fundamental concept. But yes, there will literally be a resurrection of a body being reconstructed and the soul re-entering the body. People will literally come back to life as well. You can't see me, but I'm nodding my head. Okay. Number 10. V'hine, l'fi shorish zeh, z'man ha'gmul ha'amiti da'hainu z'man kibul ha'schash z'chanu l'malam k'aymai hu achar ha'tchio ba'elam shi'ez ha'dish. According to what we've just established, this principle, this next world, the time for truly receiving the reward that we've accomplished during our time of, of, of working and effort, 
It's only after the resurrection in this new world which has been created or recreated. And man will enjoy it, will experience the pleasure in that world with his soul and with his body. Which we've, we've discussed already. And the body at that point will again be purified by the soul and prepared for it just purely as a vessel with no, with no interference whatsoever. However, don't think that all human beings will be the same. There will be differences between people. Each according to what they've done with their lives. Completely proportionate to the effort that they exerted within this world, in their lifetime, to that degree, they will experience their connection to God in the next world and will be on different levels. To that degree, to that degree, the soul will be able to shed light through the body, purify it, and they can both acquire their perfection, the body and the soul together. And they will be fitting to come close to Hashem and to experience the quote-unquote light of Hashem and to enjoy the experience of godliness. So, 6,000 years of battle, 1,000 years of, to use the term, apocalypse, followed by resurrection and the rest of time. I, I again, hesitate to use eternity. Right of receiving the rewards of what you earned in that battle. Right, experiencing the results of the choices that we've made Mm. within this world. When you say a thousand years of apocalypse, it sounds like the apocalypse is going to be happening for a thousand years, which isn't true. There's just going to be a breakdown. The the world will die. What does it really look like? I don't know. Uh, There are hints to it in the prophets, but it's not clear. But... It certainly won't be a terrible experience. It will actually be very pleasant, and we'll, we'll get to that at the end of this chapter. Mm. Number 11. Now that we've come on to this idea that death was decreed upon man, and it comes out that this entity which is a fusion of these two opposite elements, now needs to separate temporarily. And will eventually return to each other and be connected once again. Also during this time, there should be a, a place that's designated for each of these two elements, for the body and for the soul. Each one, respectively. The body needs to return back to its original element, to its source. To the earth. To the earth. Because the body was the thing that was affected. Right? The soul can't be truly altered. But the body was the one that was 
distorted. So therefore, the body needs to return back to its original elements, and then it can be restructured again. So the body needs to be separated from the soul and go back to its original element, which is the earth. Since it's from the earth, that to, to that it will return. This is what God said to man in Genesis. Because you are earth, and to earth you will return. Mm-hmm. However, the soul, which merited good things with its actions, it can only wait for the body to undergo its process. It doesn't need to be decayed and renewed. Right. That the body needs to decay. This is a process for the body. It needs to remain in the earth as long as it needs to, to receive its rectification. And then afterwards, the body can be reconstructed and the soul is able to return to it and then fulfill its true purpose. However, the soul needs a place to go. In the meantime, what's the soul going to do? This is a new concept we're hearing now. In order to fulfill this need, a place was created. Let's put the word place in quotes because it's obviously not physical, but a spiritual place called Olam Hanashamas, the world of souls. This is where pure souls go after they have separated from the body. And they stay there in a place of rest, which is pleasant. For the duration of time that the body goes through the process that it deserves. During this entire time, the soul is experiencing a certain amount of pleasure. It's very pleasant for the soul. It will be similar to the quote-unquote reward or result that the soul will experience in the next world, in Olam Haba. Because also the, the soul's experience in the world of souls will also be measured according to its actions in the world. This is like a sneak peek. Something like that. It, it's all consequential, right? It, it really is the consequence of the soul's actions because it is experiencing what it underwent. But well, it, so you say that this is going to be pleasant, so it sounds like all of the, all of the results are pleasant almost regardless of, of what the body-soul combination did during the battle. To, to a certain degree. There are purification processes, which we're, we're not there yet. Okay. But generally speaking, a soul which the soul which is pure is in its waiting room in order to... But this is not like the dentist's waiting room. This is like a nice waiting room. It's a very nice waiting room. Right. It's, it's very pleasant. Yeah, it, inconceivable for, for us in this world. 
However, the true benefit, the true perfection, the the ones who merit are destined to receive, cannot be experienced by the body or by the soul, but rather by the combination of the two. So the soul isn't really experiencing this true perfection, this connection to God that it needs to experience, because again, it didn't truly earn it without the body. Mm. But it does experience something similar. Number twelve. So aside from the fact that we've called this world of souls a waiting room, there is a tremendous benefit. It's not like it's just sitting there reading uh heaven weekly right it's there there is something beneficial and practical that it's that it's experiencing while it's there that the body will benefit from benefit from as well once there's been this decree that man can only achieve his perfection after death even though man earns his perfection before death in this world, as we've described, long sentence. What this means is that part of the decree that man can only experience his true perfection after death is also that the soul, as long as it's attached to the body in this world and the body is in its state of distortion where ra, evil, is stuck to it, this and, and it cannot detach from this evil. The evil mm-hmm. is integrated into the, into the body. Also, the soul is affected by that. The soul is very much distressed by it. And even though through good actions that people do within this world, the soul is benefiting. It's achieving and acquiring invaluable It's going in that direction that it wants. Yes. Still, it can't be revealed. It's not really experiencing the effect of it. And it's not able to express itself and to glow. He uses this word to glow in the way that it's meant to, that's really fitting for its nature. But its potential is locked down. It's tied up until the time where it's able to become revealed. But this refrain from revealing itself, it's not coming from the soul itself. It's coming from the body. The body is what's restricting it. This is why he referred to the body as opaque, I think, earlier as well. Yes. Yeah, right. The body is is what's concealing Mm. the... It, it not just concealing, but but locking the soul down and preventing it, chaining it up, preventing it from ex- expressing itself properly. 
And the soul is also experiencing detriment from this because it is unable to receive the the reward, the purity, the elevation that it should by ex- engaging in these positive actions. Abnam gam Oh, so not only is the body not receiving the purity from the soul that it needs to uplift itself, the soul is also unable to express itself. So not only is the soul incapable of experiencing the elevation, it's also unable to purify the body, which you might think that's only a problem for the body. It's a problem for the soul. The soul is distressed by the fact that it can't purify the body because that's its nature. The soul being godly is similar to God in that God gives to others, is altruistic. God elevates us. Exactly. The soul craves to do the same thing. The soul's nature, by being spiritual and godly, is that it craves being able to bestow that spirituality upon the body as well, and, mm. it's, and it's not able to do that in its current state. And so this is, this is a terrible situation for the soul, and it, it hates being in this environment. In fact, we... We're told that the soul enters the world, enters the body against its will. It, it is actively resisting being placed here. It's, it detests its situation. So quite, quite a terrible situation. Everything that was created for a purpose needs to fulfill its purpose in order to have that sense of fulfillment and self-expression. And the soul isn't getting that. And it will be lacking and deficient as long as it cannot express that action. However, when the soul leaves the body upon death and it goes to this world of souls, when the soul goes there, it's able to spread out, throw off the chains, and finally just be itself mm. without being locked down, without suffocating in this world. And it's able to recuperate. As long as the soul is there in this world of souls, it's able to restore itself from being weakened in this world. It's a draining experience, being having your hands and legs tied behind you and being suffocated. I mean, can you imagine that experience? It's, it's draining and it's demoralizing, and the soul now has an opportunity to have respite from that experience. And then... After its rest, then it will be prepared and ready at the time of the resurrection to return to the body. Then it's able to properly 
do its job when it re-enters the body and purify the body and elevate it and make it into a vessel. So it's just giving it time to catch his breath and go back for round two. That's exactly it. Yeah, so that that's the benefit of the waiting room. Final section, number 13. We also need to know that even in this world, while the soul is attached to this ephemeral and transient body, even though it hasn't, even without acquiring any perfection by doing good things, just from its essence, the fact that it's intrinsically spiritual and holy and elevated, the soul really should have the ability to transform the body to the point where we wouldn't even consider the person human, even without doing any good actions. Just the nature of the soul should have that effect on the body. However, Hashem restricts the soul's ability to do that while it's in this world. So it can't naturally affect the body in this way and transform and elevate it. So he's saying, is this saying that God is intentionally restricting this so basically the soul would be able to overpower the body naturally it has the ability to do that okay and so god is just limiting its capacity he's giving it a handicap basically yes so that it can't do that so that it's more of an even match yes there's an imposed handicap on the soul in this world avil however even though it's capable of purifying the body it rests in a constrained and latent form to the degree that it's necessary in order to achieve this balance. And it affects the body only to the degree that God decrees is enough. So that's just regard to its passive natural state. But what about when the person does good things, mm. does holy things? That should also have a tremendously powerful effect that will uplift the body and transform it completely. But that also gets locked down. According to the decree that we mentioned earlier, that can't happen because then it would be game over with one good action. So it can only do that and express itself when it's in the world of souls. But that's all now. However, when it returns to the body after the resurrection, it won't be restrained or concealed at all. It will return with its full glory and full force. And it will immediately purify the body in a completely transformative way. And it won't require a gradual process, slowly of purifying the body one stage after the next. It'll happen immediately. It'll happen immediately. 
it, there's an immediate effect. However, so too, just like there won't be a process of purification, the process of elevation will also be immediate, and the person will immediately reach the stage that is appropriate for them based on their actions, in terms of their, their elevation and closeness to God. That recreated man will immediately receive this purification and elevation beyond anything that he's experienced in his previous life. And that purification will also be in accordance with his actions that he has done in his life. And the man will be placed at the level that he needs to be. Commensurate with what he did in his life. Exactly. And the body and the soul will elevate. They will continue upon the trajectory that he established for himself. Will continue to grow. According to his level. Wow. Okay, so... There is the time of waiting for the soul, after which comes the resurrection, at which point the soul re-enters the body. Is that, is that fair to say that way? At, at which point the body and soul together, you, the person, are immediately purified and elevated uh, to the level that you have earned. That you've earned for yourself, right? Exactly, that you chose for yourself. That's awesome. That sounds great. Sounds great. Now's the time to work for it. All right, let's do it. That brings us to the end of the chapter. If you're listening, if you have any questions, please reach out. Send an email to theaverageRabbi at torchweb.org, and we'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. Coming up next week, chapter four, we have the state of man in this world and the paths that are in front of us in a more detailed way. We'll get into some of the specifics. It sounds great. Until next time.